This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. That's right. Good morning to you, Jan. Good morning, David. And good morning, Christine. And good morning, JP. Oh, a full studio again. It's it's almost becoming this. commonplace I now, isn't know, it? No, isn't it great? Well, commonplace. When we could travel easily, did you ever go to Venice? Canals, gondolas and pigeons come to mind. This is where Christine Belind has set her novella, Water Music. Welcome, Christine. Thank you, Jan. There are many churches in Venice, but it is one in particular, Santa Maria del Deletti. What drew you to that church? Well, that church, uh, Santa Maria dei Derelitti, was one of four churches attached to convents, which um, in well between 1400 and 1797 housed uh, schools, music schools, where women were able to have a very high-level education. There were four convents that did this. Yes, there were four. So they all had a slightly different emphasis. Uh, derelicti comes from the word derelict, and they took uh, girls off the streets. Um, there were there was also the incurabili, which took uh, children um, or women and their daughters who might have had syphilis um, or tuberculosis. So they all took um, they they had a slightly different um, clientele, um, but they were all designed to to um, I suppose save women um, who were struggling and in many cases to educate girls for a better life. Well, these musical orphanages they operated between fourteen hundred and seventeen ninety seven, uh, run for women with music by women composers. So the women actually wrote the music too. That's right. So uh, the girls who were selected to be given a musical education and every girl would be auditioned uh, to see, so when upon entry to see whether they thought she might have an aptitude for music. Uh, and if she did, she would be kind of corralled into the music school. And then this music education was was very high level and they were trained in composition, um, in arranging music, in singing, um, so um, and in playing their instrument, often multiple in- instruments as well. Um, and they could give performances and also in fact earn income from these performances um, even as they were training. I'm going to ask Christine to read from her book, passing the book right there, and it's, you know, what's the advantage of these girls, the other advantage? Can you just read from page, uh, page 49 here? You know that there have been several marriages between musicians here and young men in the audience. My body stiffens. It happens quickly sometimes. Girls attract attention soon after they arrive. There is a desire in some noble families for the young men to marry educated women, young women who have been too busy studying to become too worldly. Give it some thought, Lucetta. It would be a wonderful opportunity for you. These men, quite often, are listed in the Golden Book. Now, this apparently was what how it really happened? Yes, that's right. So the Golden Book is a record um, housed literally in a book of the, the original noble families of Venice. Um, and then through the centuries, you know, some, you know, family fortunes moved up and down and merchants often build, built their wealth and then they could be added at a later date. But So there were the original Golden Book families and then, and then some that came along later. Um, but they were the aristocracy and they also, um, you know, kind of held all the political power as well in Venice. Well, when we first meet uh, Lucetta, she's a young girl. She's living with her papa, who was a fisherman. Her mother was a wet nurse. She had a big brother, Lainolo. So 
she always had a different upbringing. Why was this? That's right. So, and different orphanage, as I said, they, they were different clientele. Lucetta's original orphanage was actually the Pieta, which is known today mainly because it's the orphanage associated with Vivaldi. So Vivaldi, uh, well, he was one of the most famous composers today who wrote almost all of his music for these orphan girls. Um, but the, the Pieta orphanage only took foundlings, so only took babies. And they did this through a stone cradle, so in the wall. Um, people could come, at, they would walk past, they would put the baby in, they'd turn the cradle around and there'd be a nun waiting on the other side to remove the baby and that was um, how the baby entered the orphanage and then, um, but they, obviously baby cannot yet be really educated and the nuns had were not really, um, I suppose they didn't have the resources <laughs> if you like, they were not able to nurture these um, babies so usually they did go to live with a peasant family for a few years, sometimes in the country countryside. I've put Lucetta in a different quarter of Venice, mm. um, but they were sort of sent out to be with a family until they were old enough to have their education. Yeah, but she was having, she even had a violin and she was having her music lessons paid for. That's right. So um, in the case of Lucetta, uh, she had a patron um, and um, that patron was was um, her biological father who had his own reasons for wanting to make sure that she received this education and then was in a position to benefit later on. She had to audition and when she was accepted, she left with all her worldly belongings, her hair brushed and a gift of a ribbon from her mother. Her dad polished her shoes with squid ink. She rubbed crushed rosemary leaves over his skin to get rid of the fishy smell. She went in there and what happened to her? Well, that's right. So I suppose, um, you know, there's a certain, I mean, we would, so, you know, sort of expectations of, you know, when you're going to a new place and a certain certain look that you want to have and a certain um, polished appearance. Uh, but of course, um, the reality of life in a convent um, and a place where there are many people living close together is that there are things like lice. So yes, so the girls did tend to lose their hair pretty soon after arrival. So yes, yeah. Paul Lucetta has a certain amount of vanity over her hair and her appearance and she's been brought up that way. And then that's all kind of dashed because the hair is gone and then she's sort of all covered up mm. by, the, by these robes. Um, so, you, you know, didn't have a lot of opportunity to, um, I suppose, express their femininity in a traditional way. She has, oh, there's many other girls there, but one, Regina, who is a beautiful sopranist with only one arm. So, you know, that's why she's there, because she'll never be married. So well, her father's sort of saving the dowry money for her sisters. And Agatha with the birthmark over, the, over her face. So life inside the church and behind the grill. She can have visitors and family and stuff, but it's behind the grill. So who do the girls perform for? So they did perform um, firstly for the noble families. So the noble families usually had members who were on the board of these different orphanages. Uh, so they were quite involved and then, you know, they part of the participation was coming to these concerts. But also um, the... 
uh, after a little while, the, the musical standard became so high at these four orphanages that they became quite competitive with each other. And every Sunday, one orphanage would have a go at performing and then the next Sunday would be a different orphanage. Um, and people would come from all over Europe. This would be part of their kind of grand tour, would be going to the concerts in Venice and hearing the young women performing. Um, so, you know, it was a tourist attraction as well as, as something for the people of Venice. Well, on her very first solo performance, she caught the eye of a young man and there's a lot of pressure. There's the pressure from her birth parent, uh, from her birth father. I'm not going to give you any more money. You've got to marry this man. From her parents, who, the, oh, her adoptive parents, who really want her to get married. And, of course, it's, it's expected by most of the other girls that this is what will happen. So we won't say what happened but look Christine Ballant I've got to ask you how did you how did you get involved with all of this knowledge and research well it actually did begin for me with Vivaldi so I was listening to the ABC radio one day and some of Vivaldi's music came on and then the announcer started talking about how he had composed all these amazing virtuosic concertos for young girls who were educated in the orphanage where he lived. And that that grabbed my attention immediately. I thought I had no idea <laughs> and that's mm. really, really interesting. So I started to read a bit about it. Um, and then I found that there was uh, a choir conductor in Melbourne who had a research interest in this music. Um, and that's Faye Dumont. She runs the women's Melbourne Women's Choir among other choirs. Um, and I, I joined the choir and we sang some of the music. And then eventually in 2016, we we actually sang it in Venice so oh, I got to go and wow. sing in the Pieta church which was amazing and, and such an unexpected um, development really. Well I should say that this novella uh, won an award. It won the 2021 Viva La Novella Prize. So how did you know to enter it and, and, and congratulations. Oh thank you. Well um, I'm I mean, I suppose as many many writers, we're always we've got a little bit of an eye on what's going on, what what opportunities there might be, and we often have also multiple projects on the on the go at different different lengths, different you know some short stories, some poetry, some you know novels, some memoirs, so a few different pieces happening. And then I just I did realise so in COVID, the beginning of COVID, I was working about four different part time jobs, and they all ceased immediately. <laughs> which was quite a mixed blessing, as you can imagine. I know many people had these kinds of, um, you know, circumstances and I was very fortunate because we were fine. Um, but I suddenly had this time open up that I hadn't had previously and I, I realised that there was a novella, I saw the novella prize and I... I had begun editing a large novel set in the Venetian orphanages, which had multiple voices. Um, and I, through as I'd begun editing, I'd actually deleted Lucetta from that from that manuscript because I felt that she um, she didn't fit so well with the other voices. She had too much of her own independent story, um, but I had remained quite attached to it. But it was a shorter piece, no longer part of the large manuscript. And then I, I looked at this novella prize and I looked at the word count and I thought I wonder how long that piece was that I deleted from that novel um, and it turned out to be the right length so I you know obviously I had to rework it and um, you know because it wasn't wasn't a complete story in that original form because it had 
only been one one of three, so yeah. I reworked it and then sent it in. Christine Belint has written Water Music, an award-winning novella about the possible life choices for a female violinist in 18th century Venice. Thank you, Christine. Thanks very much, Jan. Well, thank you, Jan. Now, what seems like an unfortunate car accident and fatality becomes a suspicious event and possible murder that needs to be investigated in J.P. Pamar's The Wrong Woman. So, J.P., welcome back to 3CR. Thank you. Thanks for having me back on. Now, this is a bit of a shift in terms of your writing. Previously, your books have been almost psychological thrillers. This is a detective thriller in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. It's a slight deviation from my previous work. I think um, all my books are really different, though. Um, people always tell me, and they tell me which ones are favourites, which one they they hate. Um, no, but but I think it's I think it is a bit of a deviation. But I was reading quite a lot in this genre. I was reading a bit of Naya Marsh and um, that golden age kind of gumshoe detective fiction, and maybe that kind of influenced me. But the interesting thing here is we don't actually know if a murder has been committed. We have a dead body, Oliver Stiles, uh, and we have an investigation. And we've got Vince Reed, a former cop turned private investigator, who's hired to examine this car accident. And this brings him face to face with his past because he's going back to where he was mm. raised. Yeah, yeah. So Vince is—he's a great character, um, and I—and he—he was just a really small part initially, and he kind of just forced his way into the story, and um, and that's when I knew I, I had a good character in him because he demanded to be on almost every page by the end of it, um, <clears throat> and I wanted to write a modern private investigator because you know we're we're all sort of pretty um, proficient at stalking with social media and stuff. We've all become you know, these kind of home detectives whenever something happens or Google someone's name or whatever. Um, certainly I do. And I just wanted to kind of, I guess, um, write someone who's probably more in the vein of your kind of, um, you know, your Roderick Allen who's no Marge's sleuth or someone like that, you know, uh, someone whose main skills are just uh, being dogged and, and, you know, investigative prowess, sure, but, but not being a genius. But he's compromised because he's going back to Manson, which is where he was raised. His father is, uh, and well, has passed away, mm. was a policeman. He became a policeman there, but now doesn't get on with the current police force, and it's an American town. Yeah, yeah, correct. And also then his mother had another relationship where um, things didn't quite work out. And so there's a whole backstory there yeah. to begin with, with this, this character. Yeah, you know, it's funny because... Um I sort of, I wanted to lean into, I, th I think you can, to, to set up a twist, you have to basically subvert the reader's expectations or, or um, even better, just subvert something they don't even know as an assumption. They're just going along. And so I think what was quite fun with this book was leaning into possibly the more tropey elements of mystery, you know, the ex-cop trouble background. Um, and I think it does set up for certain twists later on because it's really easy to read this and go, I know the story. Oh, a cop returning to his hometown. Oh, there must have been. And so it's quite fun to play with form in that way because it does read, um, you know, as a mystery, but there are definitely psychological thrill elements to it. Well, in terms of twists and playing with form, 
you actually have a parallel narrative going through this, and that's with Ashana Styles, the wife of the deceased, and she's telling the story from the past. So Vince Reed is investigating in the moment. Ashana's giving us a story and the background. And the interesting thing that this does is that while Vince is looking for the clues, Ashana in some ways is planting them. Yeah, yeah it's, you know, it's probably, and this isn't, um, you know, this is a low bar, but it's probably my sophisticated plotting effort. Let me put it that way. You know, I, I tend not to be much of a plotter um, at all. But with this, I did, I was really conscious of, you know, as you're reading one narrative, it's informing the other. But because they're separate timelines, um, I had to have quite a lot of consideration about where those little clues are placed. Well, did, did you have to plot that out? Uh, at one stage we went, it was a back to the drawing board moment of a, um, we, we, we I, you know, I wrote endless drafts for this book, but there was one draft where, you know, it just wasn't working and I'm, and I'm so relieved we kind of almost scrapped it. And it was because Reed wasn't as present and it was a completely different story. But when that happened, I thought, we need to, I need to just sit down and get it all out of my head in a linear kind of fashion and then work backwards. So in a sense, I did plot it, but only after a number of failed <laughs> attempts at doing it. Because you, know. you can, as a reader, think you have these aha moments where you think, oh, hang on, that connects with what's gone on before. So now we need to get, and well, actually, in terms of plot, you've, you've actually complicated things even further because you've got Kiara King and Madison Stubbs, two girls from the Manson neighbourhood that go missing. So you've almost got a third plot line going mm. here. Yeah, it's a lot a lot of plates to keep spinning, I think. <laughs> That's how I'd put it. And, um, you know, it's... I, this this the kind of thread with the with the missing woman again tropey i wanted to kind of find a way to sort of subvert that um and it links reed and the car crash in a, in a different way um and and it's you know without giving any spoilers away it was completely necessary to sort of write that in to make sure it all kind of all the pieces fit um and it was and it was quite a lot of fun like i said it's you know you could look at this on the outside and go i know what's going to happen ex cop returning to hometown missing girls and um and trouble in a marriage you know and you can look at these elements and think i can i know what's happening i've read this book which is you know precisely where i want the reader is to have these expectations well let's talk about the trouble in the marriage shana styles married to oliver styles but it's not a relationship uh, based on trust anymore no no um ollie styles is a pretty complicated character it's hard to get a gauge on his motivations um and they're from completely different backgrounds as well. Um, and so I thought, it, you know, I, I think your politics and your, your worldview is always going to um, kind of find a way to work itself into, your, into anything you're writing. And I, I sort of wanted to write about the disparity in wealth and privilege and, and they come from very different backgrounds. But that's not the main source of tension, obviously, here. There is, um, there is you know, questions about Ollie's fidelity and, and the nature of how their relationship started. Well, he's basically a college professor and taking advantage of that position possibly yep yep i think well, i think that's fair to say didn't that's how he met ashana in the yeah first correct place. yeah yeah so but therefore in that relationship ashana was the other woman at one stage and she's now married so that yeah. provides a bit of a challenge it's a real it's a real breeding ground i think for you know distrust and and that sort of thing um and questions of you know what 
you know, it, it, things that are pretty innocuous, you can view through a slightly different lens. Like he comes home late, what's that about? Or um, he has a scratch on his neck, what happened here? So there's all sorts of questions that, that gives rise to. Well, he always seems to have a plausible explanation for anything that looks out of the ore. Yeah, I mean, the question is, is, is she being gaslit, of course, as well? And that only works, you only feel that in a visceral sense if um, you don't know if she's being gaslit, if you as a reader are being gaslit as well. Um, and the other thing about Ollie is, you know, this, there's so many men that they can justify their decisions to themselves and, um, and things might be, in a sense, ethically right, but morally wrong. You know, he might be a professor and by the, you know, in a, in a, in a school setting, she's no longer a student, so it's right. And it's the same when, when, you, when like a 50-year-old man just happens to fall in love with a woman he's known for years the moment she turns 18. You know, it's, it's, it's the same sort of thing. So you know that's wrong. You know it's, it's legal now, but you still know it's morally... But you know. he's, he's got some sexual piccadillos. Yeah, yeah. He's a, and it's, again, it's... Um, I wanted to write a man who's flawed. <laughs> Let me put it that way. But Ashana is uh, complicit in this, involved. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's also that thing. Part of gaslighting, you know, is convincing as a, as a husband convincing a wife that she must do something for him, and if she doesn't, then um, then it's it's her. To, you know, she's changing him, or or, or or you know, like she's the problem if she doesn't. But it adds comply. to the suspicion. There. Yeah, correct. But now Ashana is sort of looking into uh, some of Oliver Styles' background, and we discover that there are several other women uh, who have grievances and grudges against Oliver for his behaviour. And there's his sister, Claire Mendes. Mm. What's, how much can you give away here <laughs> well, about her grievance? Well, I mean, to, let me put it this way. Every, you know, in a crime novel, you want everyone to be a suspect. But, but also, um, I wanted to reveal a bit about each of the kind of suspects um, character as well and and I think her grievance is again one of those morally kind of grey areas um, and the net <clears throat> result of his kind of what his actions that you know have offended her or caused her harm you know on the grand scheme of things it's a net zero result she her life is no different but what he did to, in my view is unambiguously um, morally impermissible, you know, it's something you just shouldn't do. Well, it's caused a division <clears throat> in his own family, yeah. so there's nobody to call upon there with, with his own family. Yeah. Then there's Annabelle, his first wife. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's a, within the system of logic, Ollie's flawless kind of logic, it, this all makes sense and it all works and, and he's not the bad guy. And, um, you know, because he's looking at what he's done to these women and and he's think he, he he can work it in a way where it's not bad. It was right. It was it was I did the right thing. Um, and if and he it was his first wife. There was trouble in the marriage. They were already breaking up when he started to um, see Shana. And and so there is some sort of ambiguity about the timing and that. But but again, he can kind of justify it. Then we have the connection with Kiara and Madison. We've got to be careful how we deal with this. We're just tiptoeing around. Tiptoeing around. But there are associations uh, there, um, and because of uh, Oliver's position, he's actually trying to help. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing, you know. Um, Ollie's got this. He's altruistic. He's got enough. He's got enough money and privilege that he can give, and he can he can be reasonably generous. Um, and so, 
you know, there's there's plausibility in, in his, you know, in what he's doing. And, and again, I'm really, you know, I'm treading water in terms of spoilers here in a big way. But I think um, I think that's the other thing about all these characters. He does do good. He does do things that are unambiguously good and positive net result. But again, his motivations would be the... Would well, be he's, the he's got the money. to. He's actually independently wealthy. Mm. Uh, so he's, he's got the ability to help young people out he's in a profession where he's dealing with young people yeah so there's a lot of challenge there um so really then the other troubling element madison stubbs one of the girls that has gone missing so kiara and madison have both gone missing madison stubbs is actually linked to the um what, what do they call them? In chief, the, chief, chief of police, police yeah, yeah. In, in the town. That's the American yeah. term. So that complicates any investigation as well. Yeah, and it's and that's what sort of links Reed as well. To, you know, personally to this kind of um, this case. And yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing because the police in small towns. It happens in Australia as well, but um, they are accountable to the people in that town, and and their view of the law is more about kind of their sense of justice as opposed to the justice system, right? Um, and I see, I saw this in the small town I grew up in, you know, the way cops can turn a blind eye to certain things and take exception to certain things, and and that sort of thing. Well, the chief of police believes that's good policing. In fact, there is a, a moment between Vince Reed and uh, Stubbs um, where they're explaining uh, that yes. There are things we overlook, turn mm. a blind eye to, which has been the case in Reed's past. Yeah, which is, which is again, going back to what I said about Ollie, he's got his own kind of system of logic that to him is flawless. And, um, and I think I would say the same about Stubbs. I think he's got this kind of, view, his worldview largely informs how he enforces the law um, and his interpretation of law and, and also his interpretation of the role in his community and what that means, how he protects people in his community or how he doesn't protect them um in certain instances so yeah it's um he's got this kind of system logic and he thinks people deserve a second chance which i think is fair enough um but who he's you know how he how he judges that personally you know that that would be what would be called into question i think but the other concern here is that the local police have done an investigation of this car accident Mm. and they've passed it off as an unfortunate Uh, accident that has occurred nobody responsible this is not a murder and yet Vince Reed in his capacity as a private investigator has been hired externally to come in and investigate yeah I think if it's a big insurance payout in the states it's it's not uncommon for them to get a private investigator for a couple of weeks if we're talking about a couple million dollars in life insurance and um and and someone's in hospital in a coma on you know on life insurance this is big money not to mention the car and so on and so forth so it's it's completely not uncommon and vince thinks it's an easy job he'll go and tick a couple of boxes and get out but he does notice instantly um that the investigation was reasonably rushed he also understands the inner workings of a of a police unit and realizes some of the resources are going to be spread pretty thin if there's been a couple of recent disappearances so Basically, we've got several women, all with a grudge, who could potentially uh, want the death of Oliver Stiles. Uh, we don't know necessarily if the accident was contrived or just something unfortunate. And really, the reader and the listener are going to have to sort of investigate that for themselves in J.P. Pamar's latest work, 
The Wrong Woman, which is a Hachette release jam. You know what I liked? I liked the idea that both Vincent from J.B. Pomar's book and Lucretia from Christine's book were imagined characters that actually stayed in the author's consciousness. You know, they they were sort of lingering around there and now they're in their books themselves. Well done, you two. (laughs) Not a worry. And, of course, I was talking with Christine Belint about her book, Water Music, a novella. And that leads us then to next week. Yes. And I've got a pre-record next oh, week. Oh, well, I've got a, I've got a, I've, I've, I'm speaking with an author. You're actually uh, with an actual oh, live well, author. Oh, well, we're we're we getting back to normal, but we're, we're in flux. Yes, well, but we have to thank our two authors for coming in today and making live radio with us. Thank you very much. Excellent. And that'll take us out. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.